0: A possible casino compromise, the growing influence of lobbyists, and the two paid one is back. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record.
1: From the Battelle studio at WOSU at CoSide, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Joe Hallett, senior editor for the Columbus Dispatch, Julie Carr Smythe, Statehouse correspondent for the Associated Press. Sam Gresham of Common Cause Ohio and Michael Miller, attorney and former Franklin County prosecutor.
0: A compromise could help clear the way for a Columbus Casino. Opponents to a casino in the Arena District have proposed four alternate locations, Polaris, Westland Mall, the former Delphi plant in West Columbus, and Cooper Stadium. Penn National, the the developers of the Arena District Casino say they are open to other sites but only if this can be done quickly and it does not jeopardize other planned casinos around the state. This past week at public hearings and at trustees meetings there were a lot of mixed feelings about casinos in their backyards. Sam Gresham. Polaris neighbors complained about Pearl Jam rock concerts. What are the chances a casino gets built up there?
2: (laughs) I think the the possibilities are quite remote. But I I think it's a great thing. We passed the constitutional amendment to have uh, uh, places to gamble. Now we argue about where we're going to put them. Um, I, I think it raises the fundamental question in, in two ways. How people in Columbus feel about gambling, that's the, the number one thing. The second part is the constitutionality and the rigidness of that constitutionality on how they would do this. Now, Penn National has a, a valid interest, because uh, the city of Columbus could make this uh, the costliest project on God's earth by slowing up the process, they would have to execute their option. So I'm, I, I believe they're willing to uh, negotiate. But the problem becomes if you put it on a statewide ballot and the oppositions to any sort of casinos gin up opposition, will the rest of the state agree to move the casino? Mm-hmm. And then where are you at?
1: All right and Mike, this was not a surprise. I mean, it's really been Cleveland and Cincinnati that have wanted casinos yeah. for all these years. And so it was Central Ohio and, and the State House that was, was holding it back to some extent. So it was, uh, you know, Columbus doesn't want it, Columbus didn't want it, Franklin County voted against it. Um, so I think they're trying to work with the powers that be to try to not be, a, a you know, seen as a pariah coming in.
3: I think we'll see some pretty quick action now. I, I, I'm hearing that by next week, Penn Central will have selected an alternative site. My guess is it's going to be somewhere on the west side, probably Westland Mall or the Delphi site, one of those. And then uh, things will happen quickly in the legislature. A bill will be proposed. Three-fifths majority are needed. Uh, by February 3rd in order to put it on the May ballot. I think that will happen. And I don't think there is going to be any reason for Ohioans to defeat this once it's on the ballot because it is a Columbus issue. And if Columbus uh, and the casino operators, the city and others, agree that they just want to move the location of this casino, I don't see why statewide voters would want to stand in the way of that.
0: What about neighbors? I mean, there was very... I mean, the Hilltop Commission, I think, voted 7 to 6 yeah. for it. The trustees in one place voted no. It was, it was basically divided 50-50 in these neighborhoods. What if neighbors in that area oppose it, Mike?
4: Well, I think the 7 to 6 is probably, as Joe mentioned, the reason why they're going to pick some place on the west side because they've got some approval, as thin as it may be, at 7 to 6. Uh, and 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 it's it's interesting to me, uh, it, by having to go to a, a statewide referendum to, to change this thing, and I just think there's going to be a lot of people, I, I assume it will pass, but I think there's going to be a lot of people who are opposed to gambling who are just going to vote no, just to vote no. They just don't like the any gambling issue, period. They're going to do that. Now, it's probably not going to be enough to change it, but uh, if, it, if it would happen to do that, then we've really got a quagmire here.
0: On Ann Fisher's show last week, one of the opponents to, to gambling casinos, you know, in general, wants to completely overturned. With a new referendum? Yeah. They want to go back, I mean, they want to go back and overturn the whole thing. I mean, that's likely not going to happen. At least not with. A I don't see any movement in
3: the legislature. Yeah. There was uh, some movement for Columbus opt out, but I think the city and others, uh, yeah. ours yeah. being Columbus, yeah. have arranged this compromise to with Penn National that just to move it out of the uh, arena district.
0: What about outside gambling interests who might come in and sort of muck up this work? Say you have the horse tracks, or out of state right. horse tracks, who don't want competition in Columbus from a casino just to fund a campaign saying, you know, the voters have spoken, leave it alone, this jeopardizes. it. They could change the rules in your city next. I mean, you can see see the ads developing. You can
1: definitely see that. Um, What we've seen in the state, consistently is that it's really just the gambling interest fighting these battles and obviously with Columbus's opposition being as strong as it was, you know, it showed that money can buy, a, you know, an insert into the Constitution even in a city that didn't want it. Finally, I mean, it took that much money. But in, that. but in
3: this particular interest, even if they came in on this ballot measure, it would have no effect on whether there's casinos built in Ohio. Yeah. If, even if this issue lost, it would mean
0: it would simply mean that it would
3: stay in the arena district Right. The right.
2: location yeah. right yeah. or
0: the, the city with the i, mean, I think penn, the reason why penn national is coming to the table is they fear that it may never be built in the arena district so if the ballot thing loses that's not going to change and then mm.
1: but the mystery is sort of you know i mean why they wouldn't have known ahead of time or negotiated that a different site to start with i mean maybe you know yeah. they had particular interests in in just getting this kind of attention for it and now it's going to be m- even more well known. I think there are two
2: things that strike me about the whole process. The first aspect is how we use the con- Constitution and the second aspect is do people really understand casinos and what happens outside of casinos? Casinos are not catalysts for anything else that's around them. They're more inward than anything else. Now it, it, when you go to Vegas there's an upside of Vegas but there's a city side of Vegas too. And all the locations that you go into where there's gambling, there's the upscale, then there's the low scale. Now, one location without mass or scale doesn't create that type of problem. But there's always a seedy side that slips through the door somehow. Is it, is it fair to th- these
0: neighborhoods, the west side, is look like a likely choice, that they should house this casino? I mean, after three months of saying, casinos are going to bring prostitution and crime and they're going to ruin families, but here you go. <laughs> 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 right. I mean, they don't, yeah, they, they don't mean, really have a chance to. I mean, is it fair to dump it on this, the lower, no, the lower, lower income happen, neighborhoods? It's
3: happened to them before. Four, yeah, yes. they got the trash burning power yeah, plant, and ways. they've got the the yeah. city sewer f- facilities out right, there. Yeah. And and, uh, but some people wouldn't put a casino in that vein. I mean, these uh, they're in the areas where they're talking about putting it, there's not a lot of viable commercial activity happening out there. And this might spur some.
1: But they don't do that. Most
2: people don't realize. Casinos don't do that. They
1: don't spur. Sam, they're going to create jobs, haven't you heard? So, so Polaris isn't, isn't going to make
0: it? No, no Polaris?
1: Oh, God, no. you no talking about Polaris. a fight. We saw so like
0: a uh, <laughs> Delaware
3: County prosecutor, yep. Dave Yosh came out with a pretty tough letter to the mayor, basically
0: saying, don't put this in our yeah. backyard. It was like that old Sesame Street thing. Which one of these doesn't belong with the others? There's these three sites <laughs> and then Polaris. That's mm. why Polaris. they put it in,
1: probably. <laughs> I don't know how Polaris <laughs> got <laughs> on the
2: <laughs> list. That must have been a slip of tongue, man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> little... <laughs> <laughs> Token nice neighborhood in there. Yeah. Our next topic for every state lawmaker, there are 11 registered lobbyists. Uh, Attorney General Richard Cordray noted that this week in his promise to prevent corruption between special interests and lawmakers. Prompting this sudden indignation, $2,000, total of $2,000 in late fees owed by about a dozen lobbyists who failed to file expenditure disclosures on time. Joe Hallett, do lobbyists have too much influence? Is their power getting getting too great down at the state house?
3: Um, probably. I mean, they've been I- extremely influential for a long time, uh, uh, particularly in the insurance and the banking industries around Ohio. Uh, but uh, this was a very uncharacteristic overreaction by the attorney general to a, a simple filing matter. Uh, lobbies are are supposed to file who their clients are. I forgot how often, once or twice a year. And if they don't, they get fined. It's not a very big amount if they or their employees. And uh, my guess is that somebody in Cordray's shop, because Rich Cordray is just too measured, too thoughtful, too good of a politician to to come out so heavy handed and say, this is all about corruption and all that, which is uh, actually the statement that was if he didn't utter, and my guess is he didn't, it was put into his mouth by an aide mm-hmm. and maybe got through without him, but it it, it just was not Cordray-like at all.
4: Mm. Well, I think, too, probably the... I, I agree with Joe. I think that's exactly right, but uh, so far as the power of the, the, the lobbyist, it seems to me, I would assume anyway, that that has increased once we got term limits. That it, it It's a different matter now, and uh, I, I forget what... Uh, uh, I think you said, Mike, 11 uh, lobbyists for every uh, legislator. Uh, that's an awful lot, and uh, I, I think it's just going to go on, and apparently it's been, it's been increasing every year. It gets higher and higher.
1: And, and we're talking triple-digit yeah. increases. Yeah. I mean, in the past yeah. uh, 10 years, since the term limits were enacted in 2000, it's uh, gone up 255% or something. I, I can't
2: miss this opportunity. Uh, Common Cause has been against uh, lobbyists and, taking money out of government. I think this is a clear illustration, where we need public uh, support of uh, financing of campaigns. Uh, When you have this type of, for lack of a better word, carnage, uh, the ratio is so high and the money is so big. I mean, we have a lobbyist making $73,000 a month. That's a lot of money. Uh, I mean, what are they doing for that type of money? Plus, you also have another thing. I, I think Mike is right. When you have term limits, and you have people coming and going at the rate that we have in the State House. We have an issue of people knowing the institutional history, how to do things and how to get things done. And then a guys or a girls second term, they got to start looking for a job. So they're much more vulnerable uh, to the type of lobbyists that we're getting now than, we, than, we've, uh, than we've had before. And I, think, I go yeah, ahead. Before
3: we get overboard of dumping yeah. on lobbyists too much, I mean, they are a very important part of, of our s- system. Uh, and there are so many legitimate lobbying uh, entities. I mean the business lobbyists, the union lobbyists, the health association lobbies, lobbies for the poor, and what they primarily do is to serve to educate lawmakers, and in this era of term limits, as you mentioned, it's more important than ever, so they do serve
1: a very key function. Well, and, and I was going to say, I mean, I would think Common Cause has a lobbyist. We are a lobbyist. <laughs> I <am> a registered <laughs> lobbyist you know, the AARP has lobbyists, right. um, and as Joe says, I mean, these groups that um, we used to distinguish, I think, in journalism between an, a lobbyist and an advocate, and in an this activist. time, in, yes. in, or an activist, and in the last 10 years, I think that distinction has gone away in the press, and it's, it's sort of gone away there because you realize everybody is looking, some people are looking for government to spend more, some people are looking for government to get out of their way, and that is a conflict that I think that distinction has is no longer relevant when you talk about lobbyists.
2: But I think the connotation, Joe, just different with you uh, for a moment, the, the connotation is a big spender suit guy who's throwing around money, who's influencing the outcome of a process. Is that the norm
0: or is that the outlier? Uh, I think that's the anomaly. Uh,
3: When you talk about 2,000 lobbyists around Capitol Square, uh, most of them represent legitimate businesses or organizations. I think where we really get a bad impression of lobbyists is they really help supply the money to the right. campaigns. Right. And uh, and that's when they can get on the wrong side of things or, or or exert outsized influence over the process. And they
1: don't do so in a very direct way. I mean, that's part of the issue with campaign finance reporting mm-hmm. is that if you go in and you know that you as an individual have given, it's a little different than if it's a firm that has multiple clients and you don't know which dollar is going to what bill and that kind of thing. Uh,
0: Mike, th- Where does the regular voters stand in all this? If you have all these lobbyists, 300% increase in some areas, and how does the average voter get the ear of a politician when you have all these professionals doing it with money to throw around? Well, I I think, Mike, that depends on the politician.
4: Mm -hmm. You know, there are plenty of people who are going to talk to, I think, uh, uh, the citizens. uh, It isn't a pay-to-play thing. You know, they will do it. And there are other ones that won't. And whether we have lobbyists, uh, whether we increase them uh, fivefold or we or we put them decrease them fivefold, it's still going to be the same. Some people will talk to the guy on the street or the average citizen and respond to his phone call or his letter, and others won't. And I and I don't know that uh, that'll ever change.
0: Okay. Our next topic in his year-end interviews, Governor Strickland laid out what could be his reelection campaign strategy for this year. He says he's not responsible for the economic downturn and he blames Republicans of doing nothing but standing in the way. Republicans, on the other hand, continue to trumpet Strickland's own promise from 2006, that he would turn around Ohio. Sam Gresham, people vote with their wallets. How is Ted Strickland going to separate himself from this recession?
2: But most politicians do get blamed for them. He can't. What he can do is, reflected on uh, the party in power at the time and he can characterize his his opposition's role in participating in the process of the economic tobacco that we have now that's what he can do and he will probably do that i think there are two things uh, that are that are important in this being part of the institution or the incumbent who in people's mind, created the process. Whether you're Democrats or Republican, it doesn't matter. But being perceived as the person who stood by and let all this happen uh, is the person who's going to really get punished. And that's the person that really have to think about this. But Kasich, as an, as an opponent to Strickland, he was in the House. He was a part of the process. So I don't think that makes him an, immune, nor does that make him an outsider candidate running for governor.
1: We're seeing this is a sort of an echo of what we're seeing at the national level, too, which is basically the, you know, the party of no Republicans versus the Democrats. And then the Republicans in turn saying, wait a minute, you're, you know, you're for bigger government, you're for bailouts and that kind of thing. I found an interesting uh, study I did a little article on last week that showed that there isn't a direct correlation with unemployment and negative votes for a candidate, but the economic, uh, Conditions uh, are an indicator. So it'll be interesting to see if that little nugget is used to kind of separate unemployment from a turned around economy.
3: Ted uh, Strickland, unfortunately for him, set himself up to be the fall guy uh, in the election because in his 2008 or 2006 campaign, he promised to turn around Ohio. Well, since he's been governor, unemployment has doubled. We've lost 300,000 jobs. But Republicans got to be careful because his main response to uh, his main economic responses has been to do exactly what Republicans want, keep the tax reform. Yep. And if you talk to people like Eric Berglund over at uh, over at the Ohio Manufacturers Association, despite the rhetoric you might hear from conservative Republicans, Ohio's tax structure is extremely competitive. Eric told me, the most competitive in, in the United States.
0: Um, the case like Lehman Brothers. Link. I mean, Mike, is that something that Republicans should fear that because he was a managing <coughs> director, whatever that title means?
4: Well, I don't know if you say fear, Mike. Is the governor going to bring that up? Of course he's going to yep. bring it up. Just like, uh, as Sam said, the Republicans are going to bring up, or as Joe with his statistics, uh, when Strickland came in, there was this number, and now it's great, and he's going to get blamed for it. That's just politics. You know, my thought is uh, there are other states that are having gubernatorial elections uh, this year, and some of those are going to have uh, Republican incumbents. And they'll get blamed yeah. for what's going on. That's just the way, that's is. the way it is. And I don't think there's much you can do about it. You can argue with this hand or this hand, but it mm-hmm. still comes down to it. Whoever's sitting there is going to get blamed that they probably don't deserve and many times praise they don't deserve. Mm-hmm. But that's
0: the way it is. Okay. is. Let's get to our next topic. After spending seven years in prison and losing his reelection bid from behind bars, James Traffikant is back. He's out of prison. He's got a radio talk show in Cleveland, and he's talking about running for Congress again. And has even been mentioned as a fringe fringe candidate for president, Julie Car Smythe. <laughs> Trafficking's campaign strategy is to ask everyone else to concede.
1: <laughs> He's back. Yes, he is back. Um, well, what we learned, didn't we, again last year, is that America loves Mavericks. Uh, um, Americans love politicians that are interesting and flamboyant, and and that's James Traficant. Um I do think, just talking around the state house, that some of the up and comers within the Democratic Party, who who might be looking at Congress, are not uh, without some fear of this. So you, there's a chance he could tap into some of this.
0: Anger, maverick, desire, and well, I mean, that's, really that's, like, that's
1: been his base. I
4: think right. he—that's kind of the way he is. And 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 the Mahoning County area is is a little bit different. Uh, you know, they kind of stick together, and they're somewhat rebels in themselves, I suppose. And and this is not without precedent. I mean, we looked years ago when, from Mayor Curley in Boston, and, and uh, we had the uh, Barry in uh, in Washington D.C. Yeah. had his problems. Yeah. I'm sure there are many more. So I think that they ought to take him serious. I think he could be a formidable candidate. The thing I enjoyed when he was saying he's not sure what he's running as a Republican, a Democrat, an independent.
3: Yeah. <laughs> this so <guy>, he <laughs> needs to beam himself out. <laughs> <laughs> he is a sideshow, and I disagree with Mike. I don't think. The Mahoning Valley voters are going to take this guy seriously. He's a convicted felon. He brought a lot of shame onto that area. And uh, I don't think
0: they'll want any part of the guy. Um, would it, I mean, it's definitely not in his nature, but would it have been better to come clean and say, look, I messed up. I have learned my lesson. I've reformed now vote for me. Instead he's saying, ah, they framed me and you know I'm going to fight for you. But that's not, drive, not his yeah. style. That's not his style.
2: That's not the way, I mean, when he was up there, he was half crazy most of the time anyway, and they were making accusations or or investigating him, what, 80% of the time or from one thing or another while he was up there. So what's going to make him change? I don't know how many years he spent in prison, but he's not going to change. Mm-hmm. And But, but uh, I, I will say to you, there is something attractive about a flamboyant maverick that some people really like. Yeah. I don't know. they
3: never go anywhere though.
2: <laughs> they really don't.
0: I mean, yeah. the history, how many are actually in office? Jesse Ventura. Was the, he right. was kind of mavericky. Up in Maybe I'll mavericky. I'm <laughs> using that word now. <laughs> 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 Let's get to our last topic. In these tight budget times and tax increases, governments are looking at ways to save money. One target has been public employee pension benefits. A recent Ohio newspaper investigation looked at public sector retirement plans and found they were generally more generous than private sector ones. but The real cost comes with the type of government plan it offers. It offers a defined benefit plan, while most private sector plans are the 401k with the various matching amounts. Michael Miller, you've worked in both the public sector and the private sector. The argument is that public sector employees don't make as much, they get the good benefits. Is that holding water? I don't days? think it
4: holds perhaps as much as it did maybe 15 or 20 years ago. But I, I don't think the, the the pension problem, and we have a number of them, uh, uh, and, and different you know teachers and police and PERS, all kind of different programs here in Ohio. But I, I don't think it's really the pension itself, Mike, that's the problem. It's the health care benefits that are eating into it. That's what's costing uh, a, a lot of people, or, or costing all these pension funds money, and it just keeps going up. The, the thing they're talking about to get the uh, the government to pay a higher percentage, uh, I just don't think has any chance whatsoever. And the answer to it is that is, they're going to have to cut perhaps some health costs. But I don't think there's any way you can get the government or should to pay
0: additional funds for for pensioners. Teachers, firefighters, and police officers have asked for additional yeah. money in their pensions. Mm-hmm. But this is, goes back. The private sector has basically given up on the guaranteed pensions that we had. You know, except for the twenty afterwards. years. The, well, and even then, they're they're yeah, going they're to getting
2: out of that. Mm.
0: Is it no surprise that eventually those are going to go away for government employees as well? Uh, Of course, I am one. Full disclosure, (laughs) I'm a government employee.
2: I'm one, too. Well,
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it's an interesting sort of uh, position that the politicians are in because they have to be voting on taking away, as you call it, a guaranteed benefit, which was a promise. I mean, we all know that not... uh, A lot of public jobs are not uh, particularly fantastic to be in for 30 years. I mean, there are a lot of... You know, decent, hardworking people who are then going to have to look. Uh, They're not getting always eligible for Social Security, mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, you know, you have to look at the financial implications and the political implications. Yeah, because
0: public employees do not pay into the Social Security
2: system. It's, it's, it's yeah, it, but isn't it's much more to of a fundamental uh, thing here about our culture. What about the covenants that we made with people? and government and corporations are supposed to make, give me your, your effort, your, your toil and give me your intellect and I'll make a place for you. I mean with the 401ks and the abandoning uh, poor people, they will live, somebody will pay for it, whether we pay it out of this system, somebody's going to pay for those people to be around, somebody's going to take care of their Medicare, somebody's going to do something and it ends up costing government more.
3: I think we're seeing uh, the beginning of a a pretty strong public backlash against these public employee pensions. People in the private sector who are losing their own corporate uh, uh, defined benefits Mm -hmm. programs, having to work to 65 and beyond, looking at government employees being able to retire 10 years earlier than they can with these very nice secure pensions in there, and they're saying... I'm
0: paying for that, and what am I getting out of it? Okay, Let's get to our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Some final thoughts, some predictions for the weeks ahead. Joe Hallett, you're up first.
3: My prediction is that uh, John Kasich's running mate will be State Auditor Mary Taylor. Uh, She wants to join the ticket. He wants her creates a huge problem for the Republican Party because that leaves the auditor's job open and that's a, an apportionment board seat. There's an effort to try and get Mike DeWind into that job. There's no way he'll do it. He
0: doesn't want to be out. He wants to be Attorney General. He
3: wants to be Attorney General.
0: Okay.
1: Julie. In line with something Joe said, I think that Rich Cordray must have some lobbyist in mind that he knows something about that, caused, that prompted this announcement this week.
2: More to come on that one. Sam. I think June of 2010 is going to be a major budget crisis in the state of Ohio. And it's going to be in the midst of the, prior to the campaign kicking off. And it's going to become a major issue in the political campaign during the fall.
0: All right. And Michael.
4: I think we have a local author that you've heard me talk about today, Will Haygood from uh, Columbus. I'm reading a wonderful biography of him because on the uh, life of Sugar Ray Robinson. And I think he's going to become a very, very well-known, if he is not already uh, noted author, that we're going to be very proud
0: of. All right. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. We urge you to check out our website. There you can get a preview of the topics we're going to discuss each Friday. You can get streaming video of this episode and every episode in case you happen to miss one. You can also check out our links to Facebook and to our blog. All of that is available at our website, WOSU.org slash C-O-T-R. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.